0: kids they ask the best space questions you're listening to are we there yet the radio show exploring space exploration hi i'm brendan byrne nasa is heading back to the moon and some of our youngest listeners have some really important questions about the future of exploration Last week, WMFE and WUCF hosted a panel of space experts at the Orlando Science Center, ahead of NASA's Artemis 1 mission, launching the SLS Moon Rocket carrying the Orion Space Capsule from Kennedy Space Center. We talked about the complexities of this mission, the new science happening at the moon, and the economic benefit of this next moonshot. Also at the event, some curious kids in the audience who had some questions of their own. How do you build a rocket? How do you build a rocket? That's a great question. (laughs) Just ahead, the burning questions from the curious kids in the audience. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. On Monday, NASA attempted to launch Artemis 1, the agency's first moon mission of a new lunar program called Artemis. That launch was scrubbed. Uh, This is a brand new rocket. It's not going to fly until it's ready. There are millions of components of this rocket and its systems, Uh, and uh, needless to say, the complexity uh, is daunting when you bring it all into the focus of a countdown." Before that launch attempt, WMFE and WCF teamed up for a live event at the Orlando Science Center called Return to the Moon. At the event last week i co-moderated a panel with wucf's steve mort about the mission's complexities its goals and potential economic impact here in florida and as i mentioned at the top of the show we had some great questions from the many young people in the audience before we get to their questions let's first hear from our experts dan flores is a test director at nasa's kennedy space center addie dove is a planetary scientist at ucf and dale ketchum is with space florida Ketchum began the conversation discussing the importance of the Artemis program.
1: Well, I, I think it's important to recognize that we, when we ended the shuttle program, there was a recognition that we were going to fly with the Russians for a couple couple years because we needed the resources that were going into shuttle to plan for our next program. And Constellation was canceled. We're now on the Artemis program. Uh, that has led to uh, an a, we're still going to the moon, but now we're do- taking a different approach. Uh, I think what's interesting about the development is the launch we're going to see is the largest part of the Artemis program, but it is the only part that is purely government run and operate. The rest of the program involves uh, an ever increasing association and engagement by the commercial sector. And I think that's really excited people. Not that we don't want to see SLS go successfully, because that's that's the, the the cornerstone of it, really, and and it's the one we've spent the most money on, planning on. Everything's been built around that. But now we're you know we're relying on the commercial sector. At first, it was uh, President Bush going to the commercial sector for commercial cargo to space station. Then President Obama did commercial crew to space station. President Trump's initiative was commercializing going to the moon with payloads with the Eclipse program. And so now we've got SpaceX, Blue Origin, Northrop, Redwire. We've got all these different companies bringing their, their corporate technology, their corporate resources to the equation, as well as incorporating a host of international partners and building Artemis Accords that's really the sort of the legal foundation for the whole program. And I think that sort of percolates and permeates throughout the community to really feel that everybody's back in the sense that we're actually going somewhere. We're doing something that's meaningful. And, you know, all the commercial launches are great. I mean, they're spectacular. And that's what Space Florida is mostly focused on. But that's sort of building the capability to do something and this is what it is we're doing.
2: Eddie, um, you know, the moon is such an important part of, of your life, and I just wonder how you're sort of feeling about this as we, as we approach launch day.
3: Sure, um, yeah, I, I'm a lunar scientist, and mm. I um, have built a number of experiments that have really focused on understanding what's happening on the surface of the moon, right? And so having this, Artemis mission that's going to go back and sort of be this keystone, like you said, of all of these missions that are going to be going back is so exciting. And a lot of the things I work on are going to fly on some of the smaller clips missions, so the, the commercial payloads. Um, they're flying a lot of the science instruments that are going to go alongside Artemis. But one of the great things about the Artemis program is how they're really involving science and scientists in all of the development of the missions. So even in the very first, um, they just released the landing sites for Artemis three. Yeah. There's a sort of a slew of landing sites, um, and those are all based on science and data that we have from current orbiting uh, spacecraft and understanding ways we can use the lunar resources and really find the optimal ways to go to the surface.
2: We'd ask you about. Uh... A bit more about your work, though, Dan. I mean, talk us through, you know, a day in your life when you're when you're putting on a launch like this. Um, you know, what does it take to make sure all the parts are in place? I mean, the, the stakes are pretty high, right? I mean, this is not a cheap endeavor.
4: No, absolutely. It, it takes a it takes a, a, a massive, dedicated team, right? And this is a team that's uh, that's undergone several challenges, like you all know, right? In the past couple of years, we've yeah. been going through a pandemic and. Uh, that that's a challenge on its own to figure out how are we going to work and and make progress during this time frame, but other than that, you know we've had other challenges with with resources. We have a team that has experience, a small team that has experience from shuttle, and we have a lot of younger folks that that have come in over the past a uh, couple years that are gaining that experience and learning from from the from the more senior folks to be ready to, to launch this vehicle. But it takes a dedicated team to ensure that all the parts are ready, to make sure that all the procedures, the schedules are right, and to make sure that the hardware is built and tested properly ahead of launch. Yeah. you work in long hours at the moment? Yeah. Um, yeah I'll, I'll ask my wife. I think she'll <laughs> sure agree that it's been, a, it's been some, some longer hours. And the, yeah. and the whole team has been putting in the long hours, but it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Right? We've been, most of this team have been working towards this goal for the past Several years, and now it's our time to shine, right? This is, this is our day to launch.
0: Mm-hmm. Dan, this is an important mission in itself, but it's also paving the way for Artemis II and Artemis 3, which will have crew on board. Um, talk to us a little bit about what does Artemis One need to achieve, and how does that pave the way for Artemis II and Artemis III, for, for NASA to say, hey, it's safe for us to put our astronauts in here?
4: Yeah, so we have some basic goals, right, for, for, for the Artemis One mission. The main goal is to have a successful launch and to be able to, to send Orion to the proper orbit around the moon. right? We do have some experiments on board Orion right now. We do have some uh, some radiation experiments to measure the dosage that the crew would be exposed to in deep space. So Orion is, right now, is the only... Uh, manned spacecraft that's capable of sending astronauts to the moon, or to deep space for that matter, due to the radiation shielding uh, that it has as part of its uh, design process, and also the radiation hardening as part of all the electronics on board the the spacecraft. Uh, So we will be measuring the radiation dosages on board the spacecraft, and we also have a couple of experiments on board. We do have the, uh, the commander... Campos, he's a <laughs> he's a mannequin that will be flying in the uh, commander seat. Munikin, right? Munnikin. Cam- well, oh, that's the next. Cam- Campos is his last name. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> Munikin is his nickname. Okay. Yes. He'll be uh, he'll be on board, and we will be instrumenting him to measure all the dynamics involved of a for a lunar mission. And we also have a uh, two torsos that were developed by the uh, German and the Israeli space agency. One of them, which will have a. Um, uh, a specially designed vest to to protect the crew from uh, from any radiation events in flight. Mm-hmm. So we'll be measuring the dosage that the crew may be exposed to in deep space and we'll incorporate those lessons into, into the Artemis II design and also to the, the mission planning.
0: Mm-hmm. We heard a little bit this week that, that this is this mission is really pushing Orion to the limit, right? I mean, this yes. is a six-week long mission, which is much longer than a, a human mission would be, right? This is this is to get some really good data from. The oh mission, yeah, right? we're going
4: to be getting some great data. It's a six-week mission, like you said, right? So it's going to test our capability to to have the the, the spacecraft Orion in orbit, the, all the consumables that go go along with it, right? The the fuel, the the power consumption. So it's going to we're going to get great data to support future Artemis missions. The, and one of the main goals is going to be the reentry, right? This this. Orion is going to re-enter Earth's atmosphere faster than any other spacecraft has ever have, has ever entered. So it's a, that that stresses the heat shield and the bottom of the spacecraft significantly. So we're going to take some data uh, after we splash down in the Pacific Ocean to ensure that we have the proper design to support uh um, you know crewed flights in the future. And those the
2: the data that you're gathering from the the, the mannequins uh, on board. You know, obviously going to the moon is one thing, and then eventually the idea is that you go on to, to Mars, right? Correct. Um, can you extrapolate anything from that data that you gather on, on, on what might face an astronaut eventually if they were to go on to Mars?
4: You can extrapolate, you can extrapolate some of the data for the radiation events, mm-hmm. right, and for, for Earth's reentry. Um, that, that'll definitely help, right, with the, with the missions to progress to Mars. Um, but right now our goal is to, to get to the moon, to, to establish our, uh, our gateway uh, in, in a few years around the moon, and to have a permanent presence in the moon so we can go beyond the Mars.
2: Why are we going back to the moon? Right, we, 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 we've done it. Is there a reason that we should be doing it again? <laughs>
4: well i 'll just start with this, so i'm very happy that you know the early explorers came back yeah. you know so so we could be here in you know and the in the great country that we are today so there there is a purpose to go back right it's been it has been over fifty years since we've left the moon, so it 's time for humanity to go back and make it a permanent presence so we can go beyond right we've been we've been confined to the low Earth orbit for the past uh, for the past fifty years we've done some great things we've accomplished some great science on the international Space Station. Now it's time to take that technology and you know, all the lessons that we applied and put them to good use in the moon so we can go beyond. We can go We can go to Mars or we can go go deeper into space. What do you guys think? Addie.
3: Um, so one of the interesting things uh, of the saying, sure, we've been to the moon, right? And that's true for a few people, a handful, a couple handfuls of people, I guess. Um, and... Um, but in terms of like going somewhere and exploring, we've barely touched the surface, literally. So we have been to the number of places we've been in this total square area we've covered on the moon in the Apollo missions was like smaller than the United States, right? And so if you're trying to explore an entire planetary body, um, it's like going to less than, and it's, you're just exploring the United States here on earth, right? There's You're not gonna know about so many different things about what's shaped the earth and about the processes taking place and about the history. Um, so there's a lot left to explore there. I also, the, the point about long duration and sustained presence of humans on the moon I think is a, is a crucial one for long-term exploration. And that's not only just having people there but doing science, understanding how humans live off world and all of that, um, some of these early missions are gonna set the stages for that really nicely.
0: That was UCF's Addie Dove, NASA's Dan Flores, and Space Florida's Dale Ketchum in a discussion moderated by me and my colleague at WUCF, Steve Mort. Still to come, some great questions from the kids in the audience. Are we there yet? Is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. WMFE and WUCF hosted a panel of space experts at the Orlando Science Center ahead of NASA's Artemis 1 mission, launching the SLS moon rocket, carrying the Orion space capsule from Kennedy Space Center. We talked about the complexities of this mission, the new science happening at the moon, and the economic benefit of this next moonshot. We just heard from that panel, but now let's hear some questions from our younger space fans and members of the audience that night. Uh, thank you all for coming. This is a really awesome panel, and I only have one question, and
4: it's um, how tall and how powerful is Artemis One compared to Saturn V? So Artemis One is about three hundred twenty-two feet tall. So yeah, three hundred twenty-two feet tall. Saturn V rocket was about three hundred and I want to say sixty feet. So Saturn V was was it forty or sixty? Like forty-three. 43? OK. So DALE it was, WAS THERE. HOW TALL WAS IT, yeah. DALE? <laughs> <laughs> it was ABOUT THAT TALL? So Saturn V rocket was a, lot t- was, was a little bit taller. However, Artemis I is a lot more powerful. right? Artemis I is about uh, 8. 8, 8, 8 million pounds of thrust at liftoff, where the Saturn V vehicle is about 7-ish million pounds. Um, the, the two rockets are very different. Um, the, the Artemis I rocket has those two massive solid rocket boosters and those four liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen engines to provide thrust all the way you know, through for, to, get, to get you into orbit. Where the Saturn V vehicle had, had three different stages to, to get you there. Um, there. Yeah, so the Artemis program, right, we have, we're in the block one configuration right now. At, for Artemis IV, we're gonna have a more powerful rocket where um, we'll have a more powerful upper stage that we'll be able to, to carry bigger payloads along with Orion uh, to the orbit of the moon. So that's, that's something to, to really look forward to. Yeah.
2: And I think this lady here has a, uh, has a question for us as well.
1: <laughs> yes, ma'am. How do you build a rocket? How do
4: you build a rocket? That's a great question. <laughs> Lots of money. <laughs> Lots of money, yeah. Lots of money so there's a lot of different materials that that come here so for for artemis one we have uh the uh, solid rocket boosters that that came from utah and we stack them like legos they just go up on top of each other there's five major pieces with a little nose cap on top and then you take this big big tank that comes from from louisiana we put it right in the middle and right on top of that we put a uh, another cone in the second stage so it's just like building legos but at the end of the day, there's a lot of testing. Just like uh, when you probably see your dad at home with a meter <laughs> testing the electrical panel, there's a lot of that that goes on to get a rocket ready for launch.
2: <laughs> lots, of, lots of young people with questions, yeah. I love yeah, it. I do too. Um, yes, sir.
1: Uh,
0: I have a question. Um, if we were going to live on the moon, what would happen do it, during a lunar or solar eclipse?
3: Mm. adding. Take that one. Yeah, so that's a fun question. Um, So, so for a lunar eclipse, um, wait, now I have to make sure I'm saying this right. So, um, for a lunar eclipse, right? We, it would be sort of similar to lunar night. So it would be like you were sort of on the night side of the moon. Um, there's really interesting things that probably happen like right at the edges when it's coming in and out of eclipse, you get really interesting like electric fields and things like that. But it would probably be pretty similar to um, being on the night side. Um, during a solar eclipse, it would be really cool views of the earth, but you wouldn't actually, depending on where you were on the moon, um, it wouldn't be that much different, actually. Would
1: there be a, a corona around the Earth?
3: During a lunar eclipse.
0: Yeah. Yes. This is why I'm glad we invited a scientist. Yeah, yeah. So
3: that's true. That's true. That's a good point. So our, so our you know, know how when you have a lunar eclipse, <laughs> you have a lunar eclipse <laughs> that sort of the moon turns reddish, right? Um, and that's actually because sunlight is scattering around the atmosphere and the the limb of the earth and that red light preferentially goes to the moon. So it looks like the moon's red, right? So you would be able to see that sort of corona that different, the, the light would look really different and you would be able to see the edges of the sun behind the earth. So sort of like we do for a solar eclipse on the moon, it would be the earth blocking the sun, so. Yeah.
2: So you have all that to look forward to. Yeah, you, uh, that'll be nice. I'll send you pictures from our
0: bureau. <laughs> moon
3: bureau. Take a photographer a with you. That was yeah. a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Now yes, I want sir. to do a little model.
4: I know.
0: How soon do you think we will be able, like ordinary people, to be able to go to the moon?
4: Well, I think in a few years you'll be able to go. And that's the cool thing about the Artemis mission. You know, when I, when I grew up, I always heard stories from my parents and from my aunt and uncle that uh, the moment that the world stopped... To, for, to watch Neil Armstrong step in the moon, right? So your generation is going to be able to witness that in the next couple of years, and you guys are also going to be eligible to go, right? You're going to be able to go uh, with the Artemis program, with, uh, with private companies as they develop the technologies to go. So I think there's a lot of hope for this young generation to carry the torch of exploration
1: to go forward.
3: I'd say like 10 years. Yeah, 10
4: years. <laughs> Ten, yeah.
1: Go to UCF first. (laughs) Yes. Although we do have Elon Musk is going to send that Japanese artist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say the best way to accelerate the likelihood of common people going to the moon is to make a boatload of money. (laughs) Buy lottery tickets.
0: Yes. Do you have, like, anything built on the moon, um, on, like, Mars, like, for if we go there, if the Earth gets destroyed,
4: Ooh. I like
0: that question. What? What? If the Earth gets destroyed, like this week? Sure. Um,
4: do we have anything to <laughs> go to? Um, <laughs> They're closing we put the hatches in... on a ride today. So <laughs> okay, so we go, go there a... and then go. Um,
3: Maybe not this week.
4: No, not this week.
3: Um, So a lot lot of what you were saying earlier, right, a lot of going to the moon and understanding how we build our habitats there and living there is what we're going to do to understand how we live on Mars. Mars is easier in some ways, but it's harder in other ways.
4: Um, It's a lot further. You're, you know, more exposed to radiation on the way there. So, you know, with the the technology that we have right now, it takes us nine months, you know, anywhere between six to nine months, depending on when you launch to get to Mars. Where the moon, that's only a couple days away. You know, it's a it's a road trip to Maine.
0: Uh, like any ideas of what you're gonna build there?
4: Oh yeah, we have ideas. Oh, we just need the funding, Dale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> get on that. Yeah. We have ideas. The first
1: thing you build is some place to get out of the radiation. Yeah. And everything we do there, or at least the vast majority of what we do there, both on the Moon and Mars, is a big part of what they're studying at KSC is how to use what's there because we can't take everything there we've got to use what's there to provide for our needs and uh, you know whether it's uh uh food or radiation hardening chances are we'll be underground to begin with simply because it's a, a way to get out of the radiation it space is a nasty place and uh you humans are delicate creatures. Mm-hmm. And uh, we take a beating pretty quick. And the key is to be able to get there and be healthy and exist and survive and struggle as opposed to just going there and dying. We we don't want to do that. You
0: yeah. can take <laughs> some shipping crates with yeah. Lip, yeah. with That was a good, good question. Thank and you. Water. Thank you for the water. water.
3: Yeah. Go Two ahead. questions. What do you think about terraforming moon and the moon and Mars? Oh
4: that's a that's a fun question. It's you.
3: Everybody's looking at me. Um, <laughs> so, so Mars is probably easier to terraform than the Earth because it does have an atmos- a little bit of an atmosphere, right? It has more gravity. Um, it has these big polar caps that we already know have a lot of water ice and CO2. Um, so Mars is probably gonna be easier to terraform. I w- would say that we don't really understand how to do it well yet but there's a lot of interesting research that goes into understanding how to do that and how to make it successful and last long-term, right? We're not really going to be able to terraform the moon. You can make bubbles, maybe, but we're probably not going to be able to terraform the moon.
0: We've done such a good job with this
1: planet. Why not work on another planet? Right? Right? And, and that, that, that gets to We're good a,
3: at warming things up. So. That, gets, that gets
1: to a bigger question, and again, it's one that we won't stop to... Consider, but it's also part of the equation: is what is the morality and ethics of completely transforming another body? Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's like the I know here in Orange County they voted to give natural rights to a river. Of course, Tallahassee took it away. But are there not natural rights on Mars and the Moon? And, And these are arguments that we'll have, and commerce will go ahead and do whatever the hell it wants to do anyway, as it always has, but uh, they're valid arguments. But, but if, we, if
2: uh, we become like a space-faring civilization, right? Well, the, these, the tragedy these stepping is, stones, uh, the, uh,
1: do, we, do we become like the science fiction, um, hmm. like Independence Day? We just go to different areas, different planets, and just bleed them of their resources and move on. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we do on this planet. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> you got another one?
0: If you were to live on any place other than Earth, what would it be?
3: Where
2: would I live? Uh, uh, I'm going to add a ego first. Oh.
3: Titan.
1: Oh. Oh. I was going to say that too. Oh, uh, Moons (laughs) of Jupiter. You must be listening to our podcast. (laughs) So
3: Titan's super fun because it has a really thick atmosphere, kind of like Original Earth, and um, it, but it has a lot lower gravity because it's very small. So, yeah, so this is a moon. Um, and so you could actually have like a, a parka in some cases and survive, and you could fly really easily because the gravity is so low.
2: So, you and Dale are going
4: to Titan? Yes. Or are you going there? Uh, I won't be too far. I think I'll go to Europe. Uh, oh, yeah. That would be, that'll be pretty yeah. cool. Steve, you? Yeah. Me? I'd go ice fishing or do mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah.
2: I think I'd like to go to Alpha Centauri. Okay.
1: Ooh. Okay.
2: Yeah. Check, see, see, see what see, those radio see waves are about. Because I'm not convinced it was a microwave or oh, okay. a, <laughs> whatever they think it was.
0: I'll be in my crater on the moon. <laughs>
2: yeah, he's, he's still going to be on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Your pit. <laughs> filing, filing his filing reports. stories. That's right.
4: <laughs> yes, sir. How
1: much fuel is in Orion?
4: How much fuel is in Orion? That's a really good question. Uh, so Orion itself does not have that much fuel. It uses uh, what we call hypergolic fuels. So it uses nitrogen tetroxide and uh, monomethyl hydrazine. So these are two uh, fun elements. Fun stuff. Okay. Lots of great. fun yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, I have some in my, my skin. <laughs> oh, boy. No. No, it's, uh, so these are two chemicals that once they react with each other, they expo- they explode. They combust. They're, they're called hypergolic fuels. So they're the, the simplest and the most storable types of fuels that you can use in spacecraft. However, they're a little toxic. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very, very careful when, uh, when loading the spacecraft. So Orion has enough fuel to, to maintain uh, orbit around the moon, to maintain attitude control. So that's where you're pointing relative to the Earth or the moon. So you can communicate back to Earth. And so you can observe the moon or observe the Earth as needed. Uh, and it has enough fuel to make it back home. Uh, Now, the SLS rocket itself has about, I think it's eight, it has a lot of liquid hydrogen.
0: Would you, uh, would we have to live in spacesuits forever if we were on the moon, or is there a way that we could create oxygen? Yeah,
4: Yeah, so unfortunately around the moon, since there is no atmosphere, uh, if you're outside, you do have to to be in spacesuits. Could we Uh, evolve? You can get your gills back, <laughs> but no. that, that won't help. No. There's there's nothing, right? There's yeah, nothing There's nothing, there's nothing, to... nothing to, to breathe except for regolith, and that's going to damage your lungs. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, we can build domes or big habitats, right, in which you'd be able to have science centers and strip-sleeve environments and all of that. But if you're ever going to go out on the surface, yeah. you're going to have to have a space suit.
0: That was a portion of our live event taped last week at the Orlando Science Center. Catch more from that program, Return to the Moon, on September 9th at 8.30 p.m. on WUCF's Newsnight. More information online at wucf.org. A huge thank you to WUCF's team, along with my colleagues at WMFE and the staff at the Orlando Science Center and Steve Mort at WUCF for being a phenomenal co-host. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our engineer for this show is Mac Dula. More coverage of the Artemis mission and everything happening in space is on our website, wmfe.org slash space. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.